morning, church family. As we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Genesis this morning, specifically Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. So chapter 1 through 3 this morning will be in a variety of other passages here, but that will anchor us. This Labor Day weekend, many of you who are members at Dawson know that we're in a series entitled To Be Found Faithful as God's People. And we're pausing that, noting that this was holiday weekend. We'd have a variety of people that called Dawson home traveling. And so we'll come back to that message series next week with the theme, Discipleship is Our Focus. But this morning, I want to ask you, what was your first job? It's an important question. It's a natural question as we are in the midst of Labor Day weekend and you'll spend some time with friends and family. Maybe you're going to be cooking out, not this morning, you're not going to do that, but uh, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. There are a variety of ways to celebrate Labor Day weekend, but there is no doubt that all of us have that kind of story of our first job. I don't mean your chores at home. But the first job you got a paycheck for. I was in the eighth grade, Saturday mornings. My mom would drive me. I had a good friend of mine whose dad owned a full service gas station. So I'd get there early on Saturday morning. And I was one of those full service gas station attendants. I would fill up your car, I would, uh, clean your window. I would pop the hood and check the oil, those kinds of things that I, I did. First job, I remember it vividly. First customer pulls up. I go to the opening of the gas tank that I'm sure is close to the gas pump. It's not there. Think naturally, maybe the customer pulled in the wrong way. So I go to the other side of the vehicle looking for the opening of the gas tank. It's not there. First customer, first day, I have one basic duty and that is to put gas into this vehicle and I am dumbfounded. I do not know how to do that. So I had to sort of sheepishly, embarrassingly go up, knock on the windshield and say, I don't know where your gas tank is. And so he laughed, got out of the vehicle and uh, walked me to the rear of the vehicle to the license plate. Any of you remember these cars where you would pull the license plate down and there's the opening to the gas tank? I'd never seen that in the 13 years of my life. And so that, my friends, is called on-the-job training right there. And so now I graduated from, from those Saturdays and when I was early in high school, I would cut grass, I would weed eat at the Parks and Rec in the uh, city that I grew up in, graduated from that to what was called a yard boy. In my hometown, there was a Christian camp. So think Shaco on a smaller scale, it was called Camp Garraway. Camp Garraway, for those of you that have got deep Southern Baptist roots, Garraway, G-A's, R-A's, Young Women Associates. If you, uh, it's an auxiliary, Young Women Auxiliary. So that is Camp Garraway. Every summer, they have uh, third grade and fourth grade young ladies, young girls who are GAs that would come for eight weeks, um, one week at a time here. We'd have different groups that would come. There are 40 college counselors in the different cabins, and I cut the grass, I weeded it, I blew off the, the leaves from the cabins. That's what a yard boy did. One rule as a yard boy, there's three guys, there are 40 college counselors. You cannot talk to the girls. You cannot talk to the girls. But love, my friends, always finds a way, does it not? And so, so I was graduating summer after my senior year of high school, June first week, I'm blowing off the weeds, and out comes the counselor for the summer, Danielle Robertson. 
So I had to find a way to talk to her, okay? So uh, we, you know, we were cordial and all those kinds of things. And I heard or overheard her saying one random day that she had lost an earring in the bathhouse. That was a damsel in distress. That was official duties. That, that fell under the purview of what I was supposed to do. So I you know, eagerly said, I will help you with this. So we took apart every plumbing uh, fixture in that bathhouse. And you would be proud, about an hour and a half later, I found that earring found her in the midst of the zip line and all that kind of stuff. It once was lost, now it is found. Can you give me your phone number? That was sort of how I asked that. I didn't say it that, that directly. Two years later, you'd be proud to know we were married. We were, we were married. And uh, that is true. And interestingly, after we got married, about 15 years later, fast forward, we have three of our own boys. We drive back to that camp and we're touring the camp. And I'm saying, here's, boys, this is where it started right here. You know, we're reminiscing cabin four. I was blowing off the leaves. She came out. She lost her earring. We go to the bathhouse. Your dad, I mean, he just, he's just that awesome. He took it, found the earring, took it back to her. She just sort of sheep smiles and she looks at me and she says, you know, I never told you that wasn't my earring that you found right there. (laughs) You were so eager. You never gave me a chance to even tell you it wasn't, you know, I was just like, here it is, here it is. And so 15 years of marriage built on a foundation that was crumbled right now. No, you get the point. Now, all of that is, what was your first job? That's the, that's the point of that. What's the first job that you had and how do you view work? For Danielle and I, it's been a real blessing. I was called into the ministry at 16. At 18 years old, I was serving in the first church part-time while I was going to school And she was right there. And so this whole journey of marriage and ministry has been a journey we've gotten the privilege to to do together. And it is a tremendous joy. It's not always joyous. Uh, Work at times, whether it's ministry or your vocation, your profession, at times it can feel difficult. At times it's not easy. How do you view it as a whole? Is it a duty? Is it drudgery? How is we as Christians, how are we as Christians to to view the work that God gives us? Well, aren't you thankful that God's not silent about this? And so on Labor Day weekend, let's think together about how God views the calling of your profession, your vocation here. And you do not have to turn and, and scan the pages of Scripture to be able to see what God thinks about work. All you got to do is open up the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, the first verse, and we see the first worker right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who is the first worker? Was God himself. In the very opening lines of the Bible, we have the spirit of God that is hovering over the empty, watery void. And God does what? He works. He creates by speaking into the darkness 
And he called into being light, and he called into being sky, and he called into being land and vegetation and all living creatures. And, and he institutes a, a six-day work week. I mean, he, he takes the day off right there. We see God working. What was his work? He takes the disorder, and he takes the darkness, and, and he creates a world of order, and he creates a world, world of beauty, and ultimately, he places humanity in his creation, not just to get by, not just to survive, but to thrive. And so ultimately, we can have a relationship with him, this wonderful eternal love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He creates so that we can join. He creates so that we can receive. He creates so he can share. And this is the beauty of creation here. God knows the satisfaction of a hard day's work. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We have this summary of his relationship to work. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Then in verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There's a beauty to the poetry and the rhyme and the rhythm of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And, and what is emphasized in Hebrew language is what's repeated. And you have this twofold repetition here in verse 2 and verse 3 of God finishing his work and resting. God works and he rests. He works. He knows the satisfaction of being able to say it, it is finished before the cross. It is done before the cross in creation. I mean, just think about the little way that you participate in that. Anyone who has ever cut their grass, ever pulled a weed eater out, ever blown off the, the trimmings from your sidewalk, put up all the tools in the backyard shed and look over what you had done for the last hour or hour and a half or two hours. And in that moment, there is a sense of satisfaction. There was a project and the project is done. And there is a sense of worth that occurs there. Well, God preceded your experience of that in creation itself. Think about you at work. You've got this deadline before you. This great project that you've got to do. And you collaborate, you give all this mental attention and energy, and you come up to the deadline and the client receives it and, it, and it goes really, really well. Or your boss is at work receiving it and it goes really, really well. And that joy and that satisfaction is something that God himself has known from creation itself. Some of you have watched enough HDTV to say, hey, there, there's no project that I can't take myself. And so maybe you and some friends, maybe you and your spouse say on Saturdays and on weeknights, we're going we're gonna to renovate this bathroom. And you come to the end of weeks or months and it's finally done. And you know the satisfaction of that and the joy of that. It's just a reminder that work is good. It, it's not beneath you because it's not beneath God. Now, this is unique, and you need to know this. There, there, there are many creation stories of other different religions that have a view of work that is in contrast to the Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is and his relationship to work. 
For other gods, lowercase g, their relationship to work is something that is beneath them. Men and women get created as slaves to do the work they don't want to do. But here we have, in Genesis, here we have in the Bible, a very different view of work. Actually, in the original language of Genesis chapter 2, in verses 2 through 3, you see that word work and you see it twice. And that word work is not a holy word. When you walk through the rest of the Old Testament, it is, it is the word that is used for just ordinary human manual labor. So, so God knows what it is, metaphorically at least, to have calluses on his hands. God knows, at least as an analogy, what it is to get his hands dirty. God has this view of work that it is dignified. And it's worthy of our pursuit because it was worthy of his pursuit. And then he commands Adam to join in his good work. It's not something that he just models he actually gives a command. Notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, and what did he do? He put him in the Garden of Eden to, do you see that in your copy of God's Word? To worship him endlessly. It doesn't say that. To sit back and enjoy the canvas of creation. It doesn't say that. Notice this command. The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Move to verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what it's, that's, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. It's just a reminder the Garden of Eden was never intended to be this, this idyllic paradise that was an endless vacation where Adam and then eventually Eve are just lounging, eating grapes all day, daydreaming. That's not intended to, to be what the Garden of Eden was. There were already responsibility that, that Adam had. He was to tend the garden, to keep the garden. He, he God, God gives him responsibility. He, he says, and he could have done this. It's so interesting to me that God, his creative voice, could complete all the work that is needed to be done, but he doesn't. He says to Adam, there's work to be done. I need your help. You are going to participate. I've created these living creatures, but now you get to name them. And what Adam does is vastly important in tending and keeping. So you see that work matters because it matters to God. Work matters because we join a working God in his provision and his care for a world that he has created and that ultimately he loves. But you know this, do you not? That none of us work in the Garden of Eden. And there, are, there is, a, there is a, a seismic shift that occurs after Genesis chapter 2 that affects our relationship to work. And, and we have HR departments and we need them and policies and procedures and we need them because we are not perfect workers and we have no perfect working environment. It is tainted by the fall. Here, just hear the word of God in, in relationship to the fall and work. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants 
of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And notice this, to dust you shall return. So the good gift of work is tainted by sin. The good gift that God has given us of the work that is to be done is now forevermore. We're going to have a tenuous relationship with it. It is going to be hard at times. It's going to be sweaty at times. It's going to be frustrating at times because we're sinners. The way we think of our work can be distorted and it can be distorted in a myriad of ways. At times, because we're sinners, we can think way too much of our work, put too much stock in our work. Our work ends up defining us and it becomes our everything. What becomes our everything is an idol that we worship. And at the end of the day, our work is never intended to be our God. But on the flip side, there are those that think way too little of their work. And and they push away from their work. And they can be lazy lazy and, and careless and then they can avoid it and just do the least amount of work that is necessary just to get by. And all the time, one who, who puts too much emphasis upon their work or too little emphasis upon their work, there are times, seasons, days, weeks, years, where it can feel more like a duty than a privilege, more like a drudgery. There can be times where it feels purposeless. But note that work is always a good gift of God. Adam in the garden, before the fall, he never said, thank God it's Friday. He never worked for the weekend. He never worked just to get a paycheck here. So if we're going to summarize a foundation, a theology, let's say a theology of work from Genesis 1 through 3 that serves as a jumping off point for how we relate to our work as Christians, there are two truths that we always have to hold in conversation. One truth is our work is a gift from God. But simultaneous to that, our work is tainted by sin. So in light of these two truths from God's word, then the question is, is how does our Christian faith impact? How does it intersect your work and my work? Well, first this morning, think about the privilege of our work. If, if work is a good gift and God allows us to participate with him in his plan to work here, think about the truth that God doesn't retire from his work. God doesn't retire from him sustaining the world and providing from the world. Actually, when you go to the Psalms, you've got 150 Psalms, and there are a variety of themes that you're going to come to again and again in the Psalms. But one of the themes that you're going to repeat and see again and again is that God is providing for the world. He is sustaining the world. So just an exemplary passage here is Psalm 104. Just hear it. See it on the screen. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Notice, notice again the duality of that. Notice again the partnership. God, you're causing the grass to grow for the livestock and, and, and plants to grow. But notice there's work to be done for, for men, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 15, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here we have the ultimate source, God, who has not retired from providing and sustaining for this world, but he gives you and me, he gives us the opportunity to to join him in that creative work, to join him in that good work of sustaining and providing our needs. 
So how does he provide food? How many of you have ever gone to a, a, a drive-through drop-off station to get food directly from God, manned by angels? Of course the answer is never, because that's not how God provides for us. I was thinking about this yesterday. I mean, it's just sort of a trite example here, but it's an example that everybody in this room can relate to in some form or fashion. Yesterday, Danielle was, was cooking this brunch for us uh, yesterday morning, and we realized almost like we realized every day that we're out of milk again. Uh, we have three, two teenage boys, one on the way to preteen age, and we in the Eldridge household can go through some milk. So milk and eggs was my duty. I went to get it. We were, I was supposed to get it Friday nights. A little too much information here, but it was late. Coming back from a football game, so I, I didn't get it. So I go, she's cooking some stuff. I go to Publix, and I'm thinking about my sermon. And I'm thinking about the milk that I am getting here is ultimately God's good gift. It is his provision for us. But the way that it gets to the shelf at a Publix is that God has created a world and there's a dairy farmer in Wisconsin that's got thousands of, of head of cattle here that he's milking every day and he's pumping this milk into stainless pipes and these huge refrigerated vats that are fabricated in a company, maybe in Ohio or somewhere. And, and then we have this milk that is filling up a tanker, driven, a tanker that is driven to a factory and the milk is pasteurized and it's packaged and it's loaded on the semi-trucks and then it's crisscrossing the United States on the interstates. Interstates that are made by, by civil engineers and, and manned and, and tasked and maintained by, by women and men here. And, and they pull up to the back of the Walmart or they pull up to the back of Publix and someone, maybe an hourly employee, goes there and unloads it and then stocks it on the shelf. And then David Eldridge and every one of us walk into those kinds of stores and we get our milk out. And in that moment, we can say, thank you, God, for providing. But the way that provision occurs is through thousands of examples of women and men working in his creation. We wouldn't want to take this too far, but in some respects, in God's plan, he allows us to be the hands and the fingers. So this means your work is really important, no matter your work. Because it is a part of God's little puzzle piece to sustain the world and to create in this world, to bring beauty and order. There's a sense in which all tasks, vocations and professions, when you dig down deep, can join God in seeing how, how their vocation participates in the great mosaic of God caring for this world providing for this world and bringing beauty in this world. I hope you see your work as a privilege, but it's not just a privilege. When we need to say this as Christians, there are perils to our work. And as Christians, we have to be anchored into something that is more than our work because it is very easy for the privilege of work to then become an idol. One of the great temptations of work for all of us that are in the sanctuary is to make our work synonymous with our identity. And we allow our work to define us completely. And when it defines us completely, it ends up confining us. And what confines us will end up consuming us. And this can happen in a variety of ways with your relationship to your work. 
You can take on the flip side when the successes of your work are rampant and all of work life, everything's just going really, really well. And there is a temptation in that moment for your ego and your pride to swell. And you think I I am the cause of all that is occurring here. And you you put the successes on you and it's in that moment that it can become an idol that you are bowing down to. But on the, on the flip side of this, when adversity comes, you can be consumed by bitterness. You can be consumed by, by worry with your work and, and even resentment. And when our work becomes what we worship, you will bow down and offer some sacrifice to it. Do not be misled about that. You will worship your work in tangible ways and you will bow down and some people will offer the sacrifice of their health to the God of their work. Or some people will bow down and offer the the sacrifice of their family and they'll put it on the altar of their work. But as a follower of Christ, he has given you a safeguard to remind you and for you daily to remember that your primary identity is not what you do for a living Though we are tempted to believe that, that our identity first and foremost is in Jesus Christ. And that you cannot, Christian, be laid off from. Your identity in Christ, it is immune to a recession. Your identity in Christ, is, it is immune from a changing financial and economic landscape here. So when your identity is in Christ and his calling is upon you, you find your deepest value, not first and foremost what you do in your work, but the work that has been done for you in Jesus Christ. This is the greatest work that defines us. And it defines not only our earthly existence, but it defines our eternal existence. And, and they're really good, helpful, practical things to be reminded of. That when we place our identity in Christ, it's an anchor that keeps our feet planted. When we're tempted to just uh, to balloon up in pride and ego, it keeps us planted. Or it keeps us afloat. It's, it's a life jacket that keeps us from drowning when there's adversity in our work and we go through seasons and we don't know the future of what we're going to do on Monday morning. And we realize that what we do Monday morning is, is more than where we go. It is who we are in Christ. This is the perils of our work, the privilege of our work. And finally, this morning, I want you to think of the excellence of our work. If you're a follower of Christ, There is a way that you are to do your work, all of us. That Paul, writing to the church, Colossae, he would come to the third chapter. And this to me is a passage that you just need to have before you. If if you work from home, put it somewhere before you. If you work in a cubicle, put it before you. If you're driving to work and you still commute, put it there Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing, knowing what, Paul? That from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is just a really good reminder that all of us will have men and women who are the authorities above us, no matter our position. We all will have from an earthly standpoint people that we, quote unquote, will answer to for our work. 
But the primary person that we work for as Christians is not a boss, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this motivates us in a different way. It motivates us to excellence in our work, not first and foremost to advance, although often advancement accompanies this. Not first and foremost just for the paycheck, but oftentimes that and the growth of that accompanies that. Not always, but the excellence that we pursue in work is because of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, knowing that we will give an account for how we spend our life and the vast majority of our adult life that is awake is going to be in the pursuit of our profession and vocation. So it's important what we do and how we honor the Lord and love our neighbor. Now, how do we do that in our different professions? I I am so indebted to the pastor and author, Tim Keller, retired pastor at Manhattan there, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He's got a wonderful book. It, to me, is the standard bearer on this topic. It's called Every Good Endeavor. And I've heard him oftentimes in, in print and also in interviews talk about how, how does a Christian pilot a plane? What is the Christian way to pilot a plane? Is the Christian way to pilot a plane when you're going through turbulent air to come over the intercom and read the 23rd Psalm to comfort the the nerves of the 125 people that you are, are piloting from Birmingham to Atlanta? Is the Christian way to do your profession only as, as a witness where you're given a verbal witness for someone to hear the gospel. And Keller's really helpful when asked, what is the Christian way to pilot a plane? And his answer is for the pilot to land the plane. That's the Christian way. Do you see where he's going with this? It is vitally important that you understand this. The primary way, not the sole way, because oftentimes God will give us the opportunity to be a witness for him over time through the relationships we build in our workplace. We always have the ability to pray for our coworkers. If we're the boss, to pray for those that we have the privilege to employ, to be men and women of integrity and excellence. But listen, Christian, the primary way that you're going to honor God as an architect, the primary way that you honor him as an attorney or an administrator, a physician, a builder, an educator, a coach, a teacher, a student, whatever your profession is right now, is to do that work and to do it with excellence. As a Christian, we want to grow in excellence. We want to, we want to continue to learn, not just as this primary motivation for others to clap. No, because we are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can never, Christian, or maybe I should say rarely, be salt and light in your workplace without first and foremost doing your job and doing it well. You will spend one-third of your life at work. You know what that computes to? Roughly about 90 hours at work. And we are commanded as Christians to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. And one of the ways that we will do that with the 90 hours is giving our whole heart to our work and doing it with integrity, and doing it with excellence. Why? Well, because work is a privilege. 
Yes, there are perils to our work, but you're called to excellence in your work, not primarily just to earn a living and a career, not primarily as a means of personal advancement, but it's truly a calling to honor and to serve God and to love your neighbor through your work. So we work unto the Lord and for his glory. Amen? Let us pray.